0: privilege to have on our program today's special guest, Mr Terry Snow, AM Executive Chairman of Capital Airport Group, co-founder and chair of the Snow Foundation and of course owner of Willinga Park, this magnificent facility in which we're filming here today. Terry, appreciate your time and the opportunity to, to share your business story and your business journey. We'll get to all of that shortly, but I want to talk about your family's connection to Canberra, if we could, to begin with, now extends out over multiple generations. Tell me about the Snow family and their their history here in Canberra.
1: Well, uh, my father came here from Yass when he was about 16. Um, They had a menswear shop at Yass and it burnt down. So they came to Canberra and set up a store called uh, Snow's and um, no relation to the Sydney Snows of um, Sydney fame. That was uh, run by my grandfather, and my father worked with him from the age of 16 until he didn't live with him either. He uh, lived up in a hostel. When he got to about 18, he uh, went out on his own and uh, started a retail menswear shop. And uh, bought a lot of real estate, or a bit of real estate in those days. Um, eventually, he bought the uh, hotel, um, the hotel Queenbian, and he was there for 18 years. Um, he made a success of that. My father wasn't a big drinker, uh, contrary to most publicans, so he took the whole business pretty seriously. Stock take, free drinks, the lot. It was, it was all no no. He kept his fingers on all that. It was a very big hotel in that it had 92 rooms. And so we used to get the Murray coaches through there uh, before the airlines were fully operational. It was a very successful hotel, but he eventually sold it. And uh, he came to Canberra, but he'd been to Canberra, lived on the edge of Canberra. Queanbeyan's only nine miles away from Canberra, so he built a house there and had a interest in a real estate agency and bought a lot of sh- stocks and shares in the share market and he done he did very well.
0: And you're talking, of course, about your, your father Bob and your mother Jessie Snow, who, as you mentioned, were the licensees of the hotel Queanbeyan. Yeah. Tell me about your childhood and and perhaps some of the the pertinent memories you have of of those two and growing up in Canberra.
1: The real pertinent highlights of uh, well, I had plenty, but uh, they start in Queanbeyan as a young boy and uh, working for Dad and uh, was put to pulling out weeds under the hedge. Um, That was the uh, how one earned uh, the pocket money to go to the pitches on Saturday. Uh, When we got older and moved to Canberra, uh, it was a little bit more laissez-faire. He didn't really know where I was and uh, and I did a lot of things and rode my bike all around Canberra and out to the river and all the things associated with a young bloke uh, ripping around the district without much restraint. Police didn't seem to know what we we're up to or want to know. Um, you, you could go on the roads for safety. Um, today you see uh, children brought up and uh, first thing is their mother's screeching for them to put a hat on and sun cream and well, there none of that and uh, we just took off.
0: I recall that you attended Canberra Grammar School including a, as a boarder for a period of time before graduating in in 1961. What was that experience like and and what was Canberra like during the 50s and 60s?
1: When you're at school, you don't really You're not really aware of what's happening in your community Because we became so engrossed with our school life Uh, Boarding school was first up very lonely and and always is for most kids, I'd believe But uh, you very soon develop a team of friends and uh, you get up to all sorts of mischief. Um, uh, And my life at school was uh, very enriching and uh, I've had to consider this in a more serious tone uh, because uh, the school parades me as a benefactor for the music hall and they want to know what my impressions were of the school. But I didn't do, I wasn't a great student to put it mildly, Um, but uh, I I played, or did athletics and uh, I was very good at long distance running and uh, played rugby for about four years in the first team and uh, it was a fantastic place, a lot of good friends and um, people from the country, it was a boarding school so it wasn't just Canberra people, it was from all over and uh, I loved it.
0: Following graduation, I understand that you relocated to Melbourne for a period of time and, and studied accountancy. What what was the attraction to, to that field?
1: My father was always on about, you know, mm-hmm. how good accountancy is for a young man. And um, so I did it for a year in Canberra, worked with Coopers and Lyburn, now the famous Waterhouse, And I got uh, pretty, being a um, junior, in these accountancy firms is like being a Mm. mouse on a wheel. So I uh, went to Melbourne to the AE Spec Commercial College and passed the public examinations and um, took it from there. And uh, when I came back, I hated accountancy so much. I absolutely detested it. I used to do about a 20 kilometer trip and we were—I lived about five, six, or seven kilometres from the office, and I'd do a twenty-kilometre trip around the region to delay getting to the office. And uh, when you're working like that, uh, you're not giving your best, and you're not enjoying it. So I said, "I'm going to do something else." And I um, got a job with uh, L.J. Hooker, and never looked back. And I loved the work, and uh, it was a funny place to grow up. Or you know, work at uh, L J Hookers. It was some, but uh, and then I owned my own real estate agency, and and uh, then I did some development, and you know, one thing and another. I, here I am.
0: Why real estate?
1: Well, my father was interested in real estate. He owned a number of properties, and. Uh, we used to go around as young men in the weekends and clean them up and water the gardens and pull the weeds and rake the nature strip. Of, they used to have pebbles on the nature strip and rake that out and generally present it well, clean up all the boxes and rubbish around the back of the, that collected during the week. And it taught me a very valuable thing in that uh, when you developing real estate and you're presenting it, you should present it in the best possible light you can. And uh, that was my father's view. I mean, he was quite anal and uh, I think I've become quite anal too um, in that wanting things done properly and uh, if you're offering something for sale, it's certainly easier to lease it or sell it if it's cleaned up repainted than uh, just putting it back on the market. And I've seen people do that and they they normally end up with a take a bath but um, if you can present it properly people get enthusiastic about it and want to sign.
0: I also read that in terms of your attraction to real estate you you previously spoke about in an article that you love dealing with people helping them find what they wanted. What did you like about working with people in a practical sense rather than being stuck behind an office desk.
1: Oh, it's fantastic. I remember one day at Hookers I sold seven houses in the day and this wasn't off an exhibition, this was seven different suburbs and uh, they'd come up and they'd look in the window and I'd walk out and say can I help you and I'll show it to you or I know of a place that might suit you and uh, I couldn't believe it. Seven, you know, and I'm adding up the commission, but it was good to help people um, solve their problems, uh, you don't do it instantly uh, sometimes, and it might take three or four months to find a place for them, but when you hit the button and it all works well, uh, you've, it's very satisfying.
0: So, accountancy in the 60s, real estate predominantly in the 70s, and then you transition into property development through pursuing small industrial projects. How did you go about moving from selling real estate into developing it?
1: I did it uh, at the same time, and um, so that was not a problem. Uh, We were leasing places for other people, the small industrial buildings and so we thought we'd build a few and, and that was fine. The client base didn't seem to object too much and we were in the mix and there we go and uh, it's the one with the best property and the best conditions uh, gets the tenant.
0: I want to ask about your, your philosophy to development and you did touch on it. There you began with small industrial projects and then you moved into larger office projects throughout Canberra. What, what guided you, your thinking behind each of these assets?
1: The industrial buildings was all we could really afford and it was a thriving market in Canberra in those days. as it was a growing city. But uh, we wanted to move out into office buildings. We couldn't do... I didn't want to do rural subdivisions. I'd had a go at one of them and nearly went broke. Mind you, I was assisted by Jim Cant and Julie Morosi with interest rates uh, just under 20%. Uh, I was very lucky to get through it all. But I soon learnt that you've got to have income producing real estate if you're going to be in the game. So uh, we uh, built small office buildings, uh, four-storey office buildings. and and then moved into bigger ones and wasn't long we were doing 12 storey office buildings which is the maximum in Canberra and we built them very very well and had all the amenities in it and all the thought and experience that we had and uh, we'd look around the Sydney and Melbourne to make sure that we were on the forefront of the market and uh, we leased them all to firms like Mallison's and in Dewsbury's in those days and other accounting practices and um, they were very very successful but at about that time I um, started a, um, a property trust and um, I bought the shares out of an old uh, company that had changed to a trust which was about a uh, Oh, more than 50 years old and never done anything and very poorly run, managed by the agent. So I got in there and cleaned it up and rebuilt it and represented it and, and at the same time I listed it. Um, I had uh, 500 shareholders, which was the minimum in those days for a listed property trust uh, and a capital base of $2 million, which was a bit cheeky. It was a market for all the old biddies that owned this property that they couldn't sell them. They were sort of putting it on us as the managers in the end to buy them out. And we said, well, it's my inclination to pay less and it's what you wanted someone to pay more. We should have a free market. So that's when we listed it so that they could have a free market.
0: So I want to ask about Capital Property Trust, which was launched in the late 80s, or which you yes, acquired sure. in the 80s.
1: We did that during the times when we were developing buildings, but we cleaned up all the old properties, and either sold them or refurbished them, um, and uh, with modern architecture, putting in some glass, and they were heritage, so they were very difficult to do up. But anyway, that went well, and um, everyone was very happy to be part of it. And uh, we rented it all, and then we went on to have these one for two rights issues. And I had fourteen of them because I went from two million to five hundred million, and I could uh, and I'd have a rights issue with uh, uh, a one for two option. So really, I was <laughs> really had it leveraged up. And to do this, uh, and to get people to take them, I um, took—I um, wouldn't take fees for the raising of the options or the um, rights—and I've forgotten what it was now, but it was something like three percent. So I foregone all those fees, and eventually it added up to about seventeen million dollars that I'd given away in fees. But I wanted the fund to prosper because I'm competitive and secondly uh, uh, later on all the developments I did I sold into the fund and they all did well and we used to get two valuers but there's one that someone didn't complain about uh, but there was no complaints about me selling my own property into the fund and I think the brokers and everyone realised that I was in serious about giving the shareholders a fair break. We had this thing where my father used to come and work with us, uh, and he'd sit down and go through all the unpresented checks, and he'd ring up these people and say, "Do you know that you've got an unpresented cheque of ours?" And I said, "Oh, I must have come in the mail. I haven't didn't see it." And Dad'd say, "Well, I'll give you another one." You destroy that and uh, you draw another cheque and give it to them. So we're in the business of looking after people and uh, that's a philosophy you take through life, uh, being fair income and looking after people and doing as much as you can uh, for them, uh, whether they buy a house or a unit holder or lessee or whatever. Anyway, the business flourished and uh, we developed a lot of buildings uh, for the fund, uh, probably about $800 million worth of staff. We eventually bought the, um, the IEL building in North Sydney with the red granite building, and they would go on broke, and, and National Bank had uh, was uh, in possession, and they had a receiver in there, and we bought that for $260 million and And... Um, That was a very attractive asset, a very prominent asset in Sydney. It was all granite clad on the outside, um, beautifully done, beautifully built, over the North Sydney Railway Station and had a thriving shopping centre and an office tower which was occupied by Optus. And that was the um, real uh, jewel in the crown and uh, Eventually, at a later date, um, I realised that uh, these trusts are are going to get taken over. And I was right, um, because I didn't have a significant, uh, I had about 20% of the fund, Um, but that wasn't going to be enough to keep me if someone made a raid. And so I decided I'd sell it before I was asked the questions as so to speak. And I sold it to Mervac. But uh, then, of course, you see, uh, GPT got swallowed up. And uh, who would have thought that someone had launched an attack against Lend-Lease? But they did, and they got control of the General Property Trust which was a big business of Dusseldorf's or the group at the time. And that was truly amazing to see that happen. But that was all over then. People were around taking over these trusts. and Anyway, I was out and sitting on a pile of cash and wondering what to do with it, and that opens the chapter about the airport.
0: I want to ask you about... uh... One of your philosophies at the time, and it's much more common practice nowadays, but you recognise the potential in attracting government tenants on long-term leases to CPT or uh, Capital Property Trust's assets. What what drove that, that thinking well before well, others?
1: Well, we didn't want to do it. Um, we said to the government, no, we don't want to, um, because we were fishing for... Um, big accountants and lawyers and other corporates, and uh, we believed that we could do it without the government. And all our buildings were private sector let. But it comes a stage in the Canberra market where you've got to eat humble pie and you've got to take a government tenant. And now we, well, we have a mixture. Depends where the building is and what the rent levels are, but out at the airport, the government's taken most of the space out there. We did a big development in Civic recently, and that was major. The major space was taken by the private sector, except for the ACT government, who wanted a a building uh, built especially for them to attach to our building, which we built for them. So we're a government building now but they're the only players in town. And all the big corporates, if they come to town, they want a government building, otherwise they're not. And of course, the, uh, the institutions want the stability of a government building, but you don't get the rent growth. They don't look after the building very well. Uh, there's a few downsides, but there's more upsides than downsides.
0: Just to close out the chapter with Capital Property Trust, as you said, you, you sold a majority stake of the business to Mervac.
1: Sold it all. Sold it all. All my interests, the management company,
0: the lot. The lot. And that was around about 96, I think, from, from memory. You've spoken of your relief in not having to deal with fund managers and, and analysts once you'd sold the business. But what I want to know is where did you sort of see your life or your business career going next? Once you'd sold out, was there anything in particular that you wanted to do?
1: Something had come along uh, that we keep an eye on. Would have been property development but um, when I was in the trust uh, these analysts had come along and say well where's your next rabbit in the hat? And you know you sit there and say, oh well we're looking at this and we look at that, but we haven't done the deal yet, but we think we will do the deal and, and we did do the deal in mostly. And uh, one time I remember they got me and they said, uh, well what are you going to do now, Terry? Uh, what's, your next, uh, what's your next move? <laughs> Jokingly said, uh, oh well um, John Howard's selling the airport so I might buy an airport. Ah. So anyway that was that. So after the trust, uh, this airport thing was jogging along slowly, and uh, then it started to, they started to get serious about wanting to sell it. So we put a pitch in, and um, I've got a view about these things. You never try and label them because you'll miss out unless you know you've got a particular strategy to label. If you get the lawyers in there and sometimes they make it too complicated, they frighten a lot of people away and if you get a few, if you find one like that you want to, you can label it. And I recently had one of those which is very good. So we we got in there and I travelled the world, had a bit of a look around, spoke, uh, they were talking about oh, uh, matching up with... Uh, uh, Midlands train uh, uh, bus company that ran an airport and I went over and had a look at this in the tin shed and I said well that's not going to be too good if you get some visiting dignity to Canberra and it turns up in a tin shed. Uh, and there was other people that we looked at to form a relationship with. And the government was sort of putting pressure on to get into bed with the big, big airport. Vancouver was one we had a look at. But uh, they would have bullied us and told us what to do. And Canberra's a very special place. And uh, we've run the airport. I reckon we're the best little airport in in the world. So um, we're not the biggest. But uh, there's some beautiful airports around Copenhagen, Oslo. But uh, we're certainly, for a small airport, very, very good, and we run it efficiently. And um, other than Qantas, we get on with all our customers and people wanting to use the facility. And uh, Department of Defence, like us, who occupy all our office, most of our office space. It's a very satisfactory relationships that
0: we've got. So we've explored your your background, your early success with Capital Property Trust, and and now the airport, as you said, uh, 1998, a, an opportunity arises to acquire the the rights from the federal government. I want to know what why what was the attraction to owning an airport? I mean, obviously it was nowhere near the scale and size it is now, but. What did you see that made it an attractive investment?
1: Well it wasn't too attractive. Um, It was um, very very badly run down. They used to drag the greasy fish and chips waste out the front door so you had a streak of on the ground, oily fat, out the front door and you'd walk in and you'd look at this and you'd think, Uh, the air conditioning system didn't work. Uh, in fact, it was, I think they must have connected the exhaust system from the fish and chip shop through the air conditioning. It was just very, very badly built. And the two airlines built um, their own terminals. Mm-hmm. Qantas was better than um, Ansett's. And we got to a stage with Ansett that we rebuilt it when they went broke. And we put a big sign up there, this is not a Qantas terminal. And John Borghetti came down and saw that and he was most offended and said, take it down. I said, no, I won't. He couldn't make me take it down. And eventually he said, well, why don't we work together? And I said, oh, well, I'll be very keen to do that. But that working together with Qantas can take a couple of, you know, two or three years and that's how long it took. It's not, it wasn't an attractive investment. They had an industrial area right at the front door. We couldn't expand the car parking. Uh, the terminal was basically uh, no good at all. Uh, the runways needed um, resealing. Fairburn was an absolute rubbish heap. That was the old base, the old RAF base, and they would vacated, and it was terrible rubbish and crap everywhere uh, I think we got it cheaply and um, when we come to made the bid we, we weren't too cheeky with the price we put on it we paid which I think we paid top dollar but it turns out there was no other bidders anyway as I, we subsequently found out but uh, that's life but there is a big water on the airports, and you see it now with Badgeridge Creek. Uh, the community have a big interest in uh, preventing the development. So we were very mindful of that uh, and made sure that we tried to bring the community along with us and with our communications and we were still uh, we were reinforcing how the benefits of the airport would be for the, for the Canberra region not just in tourism but uh, you know we're saying this is the inland port and airports are a port um, and that uh, the benefits and the employment and, um, and it is an unusual airport, seven or eight minutes from Parliament House, seven or eight minutes from the centre of town it's pretty good and we didn't have any land under the flight path but there was one little toad that was very insistent to do a development there and uh, we kept him at bay for about two years three years and then he found a Liberal member that um, pulled the rat on us and it was unnecessary and the is a dog, and it's not very successful. He's still got a lot of land for sale there. And we made them put a contract in the lease in the, in the sale of the document that they wouldn't complain about the airport. But they'll come, you know, regardless of that, people. And it's not the first time... It's not the first home buyer because they realise it, but it's the second one. And they try and improve their position. They say, well, if we get rid of this airport, you know, things are a lot better for us. But there's a lot of money tied up in the airport, so I don't know whether that's going to happen. And I don't think the politicians want to go out to whoop-whoop to catch a plane.
0: So I just want to take you back. It's 1998. You acquire the airport in what's been speculated as a $65 million dollar Deal, when you're handed the keys, where do you start with something like that? You start with the
1: staff and you try and keep them, but most of them were air services, they're the people who run the tower and the aviation infrastructure, and these were the ones that weren't bright enough to have a career, so they used to put them in the grounds team. So we got them in and we said, listen, you know, this is going to be different, it's private sector. And they were all very upset about private sector. They didn't think it was going to. Happen. I said, "This is going to grow, and there's going to be plenty of jobs here, and uh, it'll be interesting work, and there'll be action." And but they all went, but one, and uh, he stayed, and they, he stayed f- because it was privatised, and he wanted to see some action. But the rest might have been pledges because they all they all went. They, they just vaporised, you know. Oh, he didn't notice, you oh, that's a pity. <laughs> but, um, but uh, they all went. So when having sorted that out, and then you try and talk to a number of people about master planning and, and it was hard to get the information about the future. And, and I, we had one engineer there, from the FAC, the government, as uh, a staff member, and he used to go through and sort of say, I'm modelling the numbers. And it was basically um, six flights a day from Ansett and about eight from Qantas. He's going on and on. And he's holding up the whole design process and getting a good... Oh, I didn't really got the numbers. and I never quite asked him where the numbers came from until the end. And I said... Well, Peter, uh, is it? Uh, have we got six or have we got seven? And he'd say, "Oh, I don't know. Uh, you might have six. You might have seven. I said, "You got no idea, have you?" "No, no, no." I said, "Let's design it for for eight and sixteen or whatever, or you know, and get on with it then." "Okay, okay." But he'd go, he'd be slow, and I'd say, "You need someone to help you." And uh, one day I took a bag of potatoes in the potato peeler and I said, do the potato, peel a potato. And then I started giving the potatoes out around the table with potato peelers and everyone got peeling potato. And I said, there you are, we've done it in, in one potato. We've peeled all these potatoes at the length it takes to peel one potato. Does that tell you something, put people on? Oh, no, this is mine. You know, you have his arm around it. Anyway, he left, Uh, Uh, which was a good thing. Wherever you go, people do not want want speed. They They don't want it to happen quickly. They want to think about it. They want to cogitate about it. They want to talk about it. There's lots of things that they do other than get on and do it. Wherever you go, and this is with the potatoes, I made the point quite clearly there that you need resources onto it. And the resources aren't as expensive as a delay. It happens all the time. And if we talk about the farms, I'll tell you what happened there.
0: You acquire the the rights to the airport. I think I read you said about Restructuring the airport and, and redoing the runway and the facilities to begin. And then next came the car parks, then some of the office buildings. So from sort of 2002 to 2005, there was a lot of investment in, in some of the surrounding areas, all built.
1: It was temporary. Uh, I mean, we built it and thought that was it, mm. but it didn't last long. We built a building in the terminal and sort out the terminal and it wouldn't last long because you pull out and eventually we knocked the whole lot over and built it and we didn't actually lose a flight because of all the changes at the airport we met our commitments to the airlines. But um, this, uh, planning for airports is very difficult uh, particularly when you've got to put three million people through it a year and that's what we did and um, we built a fantastic airport. They're very proud of it.
0: Clearly, the the architecture is is a big theme. As is the surrounding precincts. What guided your thinking to have these sort of three business parks that are there now? Uh, You know, and by the numbers, I think there's Brindabella, which is 22 buildings, 170,000 square metres of office, Majura Park, 62,000 square metres of office, 90,000 square metres of retail, and then Fairburn, uh, which is eight buildings and and 70-odd thousand square metres. How did you go about master planning those precincts?
1: Well, the terminal was the first one, and you'll notice that the terminal, the car park, is down the side. So... If you park your car, you you walk into the terminal, you don't walk across the road to get into a terminal like you do in Melbourne or Sydney, or unless you're dropped off by Qantas, a a taxi. If you're dropped off by a taxi, it's different. But for the, the average punter who drives there, so we kept all, separated the traffic and the people from circulation. And there were things like this that we'd done on this airport that had never been done in the world. And we wrote around the world and said, now this is what we're going to do. What do you think? And, they, and the comments came back. and said, oh, we've never seen one of these, but have a go. And it's worked out well. And uh, it's, uh, the whole airport's embraced to um, to the west And when you arrive at the front of the airport, you will see a tail of a plane through security, through the foyer, through the foyer behind the security, you will see a tail of a plane. So the wayfinding is very, very easy. Now you go to Melbourne and you're all over the place, you know, up and down escalators and where's my plane and where's this. You've just got to, you can see the plane, you walk to that point and you either go left or go right and get on your plane easy peasy. And that was uh, quite something, but they don't do it. Uh, Those uh, business parks are very important because we wouldn't have been able to develop the airport without them. They generated the cash and the the funds to do the development. They were what we call the financial lungs of the airport. That's very important to have them Otherwise, aviation doesn't make any money and um, you don't get much for landing fees, contrary to what Mr. Manager of Kwanath says, or Joyce. Mr. Joyce, little charmer. He doesn't pay any credence to that or park a plane in front of a building. and So the bitumen's very expensive and it's very deep. Uh, the bitumen could be um, on the runway uh, half the height of this room they dig it out and put in this rock and there's a lot of rock in there and stabilise it and then they put in more finer gravel until they get to the surface. But the runway's a very big undertaking. And again, we extended that runway and widened it and didn't lose a flight. So that takes some management. But the business parks are very important. If no business parks, no airport. In fact, we came back from overseas with Stephen and uh, we sat down and I said, I don't know how we're gonna do this. We'll have to hand this back. I said, "Uh, you know, the revenue, you can't, I mean, fighting for more revenue is not on. They, They just will not play. I said, well, where are we gonna get the money to do this? And then we started on the precincts. Pretty simple solution, but, but that's what provides the money for the for the development.
0: Just before we move on, what determined where you put each of the, the sort of, so you've got a, an office precinct, you've got a sort of a more of a retail precinct. Why did you pursue office and retail as opposed to industrial or as opposed to like we see in, in some other privately owned airports, particularly in Melbourne, with car dealerships and sort of experience centres, you've got really strong retail and really strong office.
1: We did consider it an industrial, and looking, I was talking just the other day about it, and what a silly decision that would have been. They don't create, um, deliver the funds. These big office buildings are big investments, and you do get more income, more yield from these bigger investments than you do from land-hungry areas where someone might want to park cable or pipe or industrial sites or storage sites. It's not a great use of your land. Office is about the highest and best use you can get, and retail too. Though we did have a retailer there go broke. We had that brand depot there. And um, that was like uh, you see down at Essendon. But that went broke and uh, they came to Canberra and bid on what they wanted to do with us, but they didn't really, they were hoping to get a block off the ACT. And we realised they did, and we bid up more than it was worth, like over twice, and just pulled out at at the end and uh, as far as I reckoned it would go, and uh, people got it. Anyway, they went broke too, with that. So, uh, Melbourne people, they, they know everything, those Melbourne people.
0: Before, uh, before we talk about- Particularly Canberra. A couple of other aspects. You've been clearly intricately involved in the aviation sector for more than two decades now. What's good about it and, and what's not so good?
1: Well, it's a monopoly and um, that's bad and, uh, you know, we get ten cancellations sometimes a day and it's just not good to see the public distressed in that way. Like any business, it's uh, good. We've got it on our own. There's no-one else there and we just go about our business without any great fanfare and uh, I like that and get on and do it.
0: That brings us on to Capital Property Group, of of which is separate to the airport and which develops office precincts and and residential precincts. Here in Canberra, there's been the Constitution Place $300 million mixed-use project that was delivered in 2020. Take us inside this project and and the extent to which it was a a full-circle moment for yourself and the family, given your grandfather's store was, I think, only a couple of hundred metres down the road.
1: Oh, yeah, well, we've done plenty of development civic uh, this was certainly the biggest uh, the biggest ever done in civic by anyone the idea was you were to build a building for the ACT rent-free and they would give you the development rights or you'd bid for the development rights of this block and we did that and we won it and uh, if you're going to win tenders you got to pay over and above can't pay the carded rate there's a book put out by Condis Savars that will tell you what's what it's worth or what the development profit will be you can't take any notice of that because everyone's operating off that so you've got to put more in if you want to get it and that's what we did and that's what we do
0: there's also denman prospect the the same thing so again mixed use residential and...
1: yeah well denman prospect that was a real good we're getting the feasibility, the book of feasibility studies and you fill in the rates and how much tax and what the interest rate is and how much a metre for roads and down the bottom pops out a profit and and what do you want as a profit margin. And we said, well, that's rubbish, everyone's on that, so stick more on. And then the tender failed for some reason, I don't know, but it was for government cause. I mean it was a government decision for for something that happened in the department and they did it again and I said well everyone knows what we bid so we'll have to go up again and we did and it's reasonably profitable development.
0: There's a couple of other uh, ventures and aspects I want to ask about your business life but what are the keys for success in property whether it be property development or, or property investment what have you learned?
1: The most significant thing is to do it as well as you possibly can, to thoroughly research it and what the product's going to be like particularly, and to do it very, very well. We have a thing here called um, excellence is our power, and if you do something really excellent it just works. And if you, you know, on this place, for instance, I've done about three or four of these arenas three times. And that's a big job because I've got vinyl liners and water membranes and I dig out this different types of sand and I've got to put the rough sand over here and the coarser sand there and the finer sand here. Remix it all up and, and it's a big job. And whatever you're doing in construction and this place Willinga Park bears it out but the airport does um, just do it fantastically well and that includes the landscape you cannot have these buildings without high quality landscape because the landscape's half the
0: package. What about when you're deploying capital or investing into ventures be it property or private equity or venture capital what do you look for in, a, in an investment or a business that you're investing in?
1: Well, I'm interested only in the capital gain and uh, if I'm not fussed about the return but I am interested in the capital gain, what we'll go into and I've done that with farms. You buy these farms, uh, they run down, they need uh, a lot of money spent on them, they need fences, dams, roads. Uh, you've got to remove houses because they're just unlivable. Uh, build new houses, new yards, new everything. And when you do that, and I proved it, and uh, you move the, you know, the whole quality of the property up, you'll get more money, significant amount of money. And I'm not interested in return and we have people on my cattle properties that want to run cattle on parts of it and I say no let's get it done properly let's do the pastures do the water do the fences do the roads do the cattle yards and let's get it all sorted out and then the pasture and the deep ripping and all that let's get all that done and then we'll put the cattle on but they're always putting cattle on. And you can ring up people in Queensland or anywhere and they'll just deliver your cattle. And you, they pay 60 cents a head or whatever it is uh, a day. And their cattle are there, but while they're there, you can't do anything. And I'm saying, I don't want the money, I want the cattle. And that takes a lot of getting through. And all, all aspects, people will always try and look for the return, the immediate cash return to pay the interest, I'm saying, no, don't worry about that. Capitalise that and build it, get it done properly and put it in the market and have it as good as you can possibly make it.
0: Let's talk about the location of today's shoot, this incredible Willinga Park. Facility, you've obviously spent a, a significant amount of time and, and resources on building and establishing this over many years. It's a one thousand hectare parcel of land, or twenty four, twenty three, or twenty four hundred acres, I think. Uh, from memory, three Olympic dressage arenas, warm up arena, show jumping field, camp drafting stage, two hundred plus stables. What? What? How did this all come about? I was interested in
1: horses and. Uh, <laughs> horses will do that to you. Um, the, uh, I got one and uh, I said I'd better breed a few so I got a couple of mares and "Well, i better do build one of these and uh, i build that and I'll probably get more so I'll make them bigger and off it went. Started down here at the stables, then had to put a swimming pool in, a water treadmill uh horse shaker and weighing machines round yards and then they're all rubber lined so the horses don't damage themselves because there's some, quite some valuable horses. We don't have many race horses um, just you count them on a hand. But all our horses are mainly um, stock horses or cross between stock horses and American Quarter horses used in the cattle industry. Also very good riding horses for mum and dad, and you know, they're safe, they're not big, they're not flighty. They, um, race horses are hot bloods, so they're very fiery, they're very dynamic. And the big warm bloods are a very difficult, big heavy horse for a child or a woman to handle. They do, and uh, some of them do it very well generally speaking so, and there's not much of a market here in Australia for them. And then we run these surrogate mares, Uh, we've got about 120 surrogate mares and we use them to take the live embryo out of one of our stock horses and implant it in the surrogate and she develops the foal and eventually has the foal and she's the mother of the foal. And that frees up the original horse, the donor. We can reuse or take another egg from her or anyway, she's available to us. And that is a big business that we run here down at the um, vet hospital. And we have a research facility there. Second, uh, We know vet hospital in Australia would have what we have down there because it's modelled on the... Um, Royal Women's Hospital of Sydney, because they take eggs out of humans who have cancer in the uterus or whatever, store the eggs, and then when, if the woman gets better, and they'll then take the egg out and put the semen with it and they'll have a baby, or someone will carry a baby. But, um, and we've got all that equipment here and we've got a vet from uh, Holland uh, who's very experienced in this. He's uh, developed this program and uh, no one in Australia has done it and not many people in the world. They've done it in Argentina and do it in Argentina and they do it in Italy funnily enough.
0: It's clearly a a -a one-of-a-kind, world-class facility. This. What does the next evolution look like you've as I mentioned you've obviously poured so much time and resources into the sustainability of the facility but also the overall design and aesthetic and build quality just as you have with Canberra Airport where do you want to take this in the years to come? I'd be very happy if
1: we um, uh, had a first-class vet facility here uh, and we have got one we spent a significant amount of money on the one that we've got uh, with all the equipment and the people And we're just starting to crank that up now. So we've got to attract other vets, surgeons and anesthetists and things like that. And I think it could be the preeminent vet operation in the country. Um, There's one at Randwick that's very good. um, It's land staff, but we can do the veterinary work. We can do all the rehabilitation. We've got the sand arenas, got the swimming pool, got the uh, treadmill, got the water walkers. Uh, we've got a mile track for uh, for horse riding or race horses to test out on. So it's, you know, we're very, very lucky and we've got the land now to develop all these horse, these... Uh, surrogate horses.
0: We've covered a a lot of ground in this interview, so I thought we'd close out our discussion with a few more general questions about your approach to to both business and life. I came across this quote wherein you said, my greatest passion in life is building and developing things. That is what makes me tick. Why why are you so passionate about building things and and seeing the physical form in in front of you?
1: None of this was pre-planned and I don't think anyone could have pre-planted. So you say you're gonna put an office block here and you're gonna put an arena there after you've started. And how do you do it? Where do you put it? So you have an immense amount of problems. How do I get services to it? And how do do I do the services? Uh, We've got uh, 2000 solar panels here. Uh, Quite soon we'll have two and a half thousand solar panels, we, uh, we have our own Tesla batteries, we have our own generators. We're basically off the grid. And so that you know the things like this you think about, how are we going to get the power to it, how are' you going to get water to it? how are you going to do the sewage? These are all problems and you've got to solve them before you go ahead. And the architects are good at solving problems. And I think that I'm quite good at solving problems because I'll know what I'll accept or not accept. Architects might come with some yeah, for highfalutin mm-hmm. and there's one, depends who it is, but I have one architect, if you lift your foot on him, he'll come down with some cracking buildings. But you know you're not gonna build them because they're just too dear. So it's a problem solving thing that I enjoy about it and the job of doing it properly and uh, creation and having a look at it and the gee whiz factor when you're finished and you go well that's the proper job and <coughs> you'll go around here in front of all the stables there's grass and landscaping and you think gee whiz uh, someone's taken real care over this and we put in a here we put in a meals area for the for the contestants. Got a fully heated swimming pool. Got a gymnasium, big block of showers and toilets. And so people coming up in their caravans and putting the horse in the stables. It's that's all home away from home. As well as the beautiful gardens to walk through and uh, just enjoy the place. And we put these gardens in for the people that uh, come that may not be interested in horses but would like a day out in the country. and So they go through the gardens. We have some beautiful gardens. We open those up and it's all about, you know, enjoying the physical form that you've created. And uh, you step back and look at it and say, wow, this is amazing. And you go away and you come back and say, how green it looks and look at this. And, oh, gee, that... That those shrubs are moved ahead, and doesn't that look good there? And you get a, you know, you see it through a fresh pair of eyes. Not often, but um, more particularly after you've been away. But I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing to do. And then there's the thing about the human thing. So young kids come along and young contestants come along and compete and develop themselves and improve their. Their work, I mean, I have a, a team in uh, in London of uh, nine dressage horses and some people over there who are training for the Olympics. And uh, I think he'll get in the Australian Olympic team. I'm sure he will. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. And he's over there having the best the lessons from the best coach in the, in the world, probably. And he's got these horses just coming along. And I initially started here hoping one day that I'd have a team in the Olympics and uh, and we'd improve Australia's ranking. You can't say that we're going to get gold (coughs) because I think the Germans and Dutch have got that sewn up and the English. But we're over there. He's over there, been there for two years with the English so um, he's in the the other camp. And I have a girl here who, um, she probably won't go to the Olympics, but uh, she was on the short list uh, last time and um, she'll end up on the short list, we've just got to develop some horses now. The horse that she went with last time was getting a bit
0: old. You've been in business for over five decades, which is an extraordinary achievement in and of itself. I read this quote that I thought was worth repeating and, and you said to run a successful business is about having balance and a relationship with the community, it is not about how much money you can rip out of the business to keep the institutions happy. What are the fundamentals for success in business, any business, not, not necessarily property but just running a business?
1: First of all you do have to have a relationship with the community otherwise i will get you. particularly you build something like this and they say oh this is for the rich people and you know and uh, some people get jealous and get their nose out of joint so you've got to try and bring people with you but we employ a lot of local staff here but the thing that to be successful about business and is uh, you got to do it well in fact you got to do it as good as you possibly can do it and you've got to think about it. You will always be able to do what you want to do if you, th- if you think about it and it might involve a few steps but uh, I've been confronted with situations where I didn't know how I was going to proceed and you thought about it and you thought about it and you chipped away and eventually probably a lot of showers, you seem to solve the problem and you can move ahead, uh, very few things that you can't do as a human being, and um, I just think uh, delivering the goods, treating people fairly, and build quality. What's
0: motivated you over your career? Have you always wanted to get to a certain stage of, of wealth, which I, I, you don't strike me as somebody that, that is that sort of person, but has there always been an end goal, or has it just things have panned out the way that they have?
1: I um, don't spend a lot of money. I spend money on buildings, but, you know, I'm not a great sharp dresser, Um, as you can see. If I was in the office in Canberra, I'd be a bit smarter, but um, I've made a lot of money. Um, Sometimes it surprises me how much we've made, but uh, we give um, uh, $140 million to the Snow Foundation. I'll be giving about... um, Uh, 90 million dollars to medical science in the short term. We give each uh, the brightest students in the country we take and give them a million dollars a year uh, to do important research work. But uh, I've instructed my son who runs Snow Medical to spend a lot more than that um, uh, and uh, I'm always looking at a number of things. But uh, that'll be a lot more than that. It'll be probably, well, oh, it could be half my wealth sort of thing. We don't know how that goes, and I don't believe in how much money I got. You read it in my papers, and I just say, where'd they get that figure from? I've never added it up. And, and you can't add it up, I mean, you know.
0: And do you think uh, clearly the, the material... Things, I mean, properties like this, and and some of the toys that you've got to to travel in a practical sense from here back to Canberra, make sense. But like you said, you you don't seem fascinated by the cars and the watches and the boats and the jets and and those sort of things. Is it, do you get the sense that others get carried away with that?
1: Yeah, but they work for it and they they want a the boat, so they go and work for a boat. And I mean, I built a boat and uh, sailed around Australia and. New Caledonia and New Guinea and came back and stepped off the boat when I came back and never got back on it and sold the boat and um, I just wanted to do that. I think it was inspired by Matthew Flinders. I don't spend you know, a lot of money. I don't have overseas trips. I, um, I have my holidays in Queensland if it's too cold down here in the south. Uh, uh, I don't go to Europe. The younger kids do but um, I'm not interested and uh, just get on with my life and I'm in now a position to help other people and that's what I want to do. It
0: feeds nicely into my final question, which is about legacy. How would you define your legacy? What are your proudest achievements?
1: Oh, if you could say a couple. We have ten farms in Queensland I've really put on the map and they are very, very productive farms now. Uh, the airports are very proud of the airport, I'm very proud of Willinga. Probably most proud of uh, the development that's happening with Snow Medical and the money that we're going to give to medical research. And uh, I'm most proud of, uh, well, I'm nearly as proud of the Snow Foundation as Snow Medical. I think um, giving people is a very warm thing to do. And I've got the money and we've helped people with alcoholism, broken families, battered women, uh, homes for men, uh, food kitchens, uh, scrounging second-hand furniture, not that I do, but, um, but uh, we finance people to do that. And, and uh, with Aborigines, uh, they're the topic of the moment. Uh, we've spent a lot of money on um, rheumatic heart disease, which is a condition that's basically only suffered by Aborigines, and it comes from scabies, and uh, these old women in these primitive accommodation have this uh, scabies, and they won't come out and talk about it, and they get these skin infections, and then that. Uh, creates this situation for for um, uh, rheumatic heart disease and it's, uh, it's a big operation to get, to fix, uh, to have a, um, the Aboriginal children have big needles of penicillin uh, once every month and for the rest of their lives unless they're lucky to get it the surgery or to get it early enough. So we have vans going around... Talking to people, um, trying to find these uh, people with scabies so that we can do something about it. There's a paediatrician uh, goes along and as part of all this, and the daughter does it, and, or someone from the family's done it often, and it's just brilliant. And I uh, get a big feeling from that.
0: Terry Snow, I am privileged to have you on the program. Thanks for sharing your remarkable journey. <laughs> oh, thank you.